come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome listeners to episode 167 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. So on this episode, I'm almost completely caught up as I'm recording this on the same day that this episode is supposed to be coming out. So hopefully that means I can get everything you know squared away and get back on my normal release schedule. But this episode here is going to feature my first actually couple of 2023 horror movie releases as the first one's going to be a featured review of Megan, and then I'm pairing that up as my New Year new movie here as House, a.k.a. House Sue from 1977 was the other one that, that one actually came up on the randomizer. And I also have mini reviews for you, some more Traverse Through the Threes as I have King Kong from 1933, The Untold Story, then I also got to watch Bermuda Island, which this was a screener, and then Alchemy of the Spirit, which is also a screener. The latter one, not necessarily a horror movie, but thought it could be interesting enough here to talk about on the episode. Don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here, so what I will say then is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini-review is going to be King Kong from 1933. This was directed by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Schoenstack. This is written by James Ashmore Krillman and Ruth Rose. This stars Faye Ray, Robert Armstrong, and Bruce Cabot. This is a adventure horror sci-fi film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.9 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being a film crew goes to a tropical island for an exotic location shoot and discovers a colossal ape who takes a shine to their female blonde star. He is then captured and brought back to New York City for public exhibition. So this is a film that I would have refused to see growing up because I didn't like anything that was black and white. Now I came around in college when I took Intro to World Cinema and saw some of the classics. Now my mother had a box set that I borrowed and remembered watching this in my apartment while I was in school. 
I've now seen this a handful of times, including at the Gateway Film Center during their Horror 101 series. But this is one that was probably a decade between my first and second viewing. What amazes me is that having now seen this a third time, it holds up so well. It is interesting that being that this came out in 1933 with the film industry still being relatively new, but they were going out into nature to make Carl's Wild movies. Now, I have seen some other ones from this era. Like, this one's obviously giving you, like, a peek behind the camera for the film industry, but I've also seen some other ones that I'm pretty sure were shot on location as well. It was interesting that Carl didn't want to have a female lead, but the fans wanted more of a love story in his movies, so that's the only reason that he goes out and hires Faye Ray's character here. And I should also say that her character's name is Anne Darrow, his, and Robert Armstrong is Carl Denham. But Carl's a good guy who is strictly about business. Now, something I love about the film and its setting here is that I'm a big fan of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, which I believe this one borrows heavily from. It's the idea of an island that is just out there that is fascinating to me, and I kind of wish it to be true. Being that it's so isolated, we have these creatures that we see today, and they're just larger, as well as having, like, dinosaurs. And there's so many uncharted islands out there that it makes you wonder. And, I mean, you also have things like Australia, where there's just so many things that exist in that habitat alone. So that makes me think, like, what if? Another aspect that I almost feel like this is borrowing from are the cannibal films, or they might have actually borrowed some ideas from this. It is sad to see that us as a civilized people coming to their island and then disrupting their way of life. Now, in this case, the invaders didn't necessarily disrupt their lives too much aside from trying to film there. What I have a problem with, though, is what they do with Kong. I will delve into that a bit more in a second with some of the concepts from a documentary that I saw. So if you know me, I'm a Caucasian male, and I like to think that I'm pretty open-minded and try to understand the plates of others. This view into the film, I can see how it can be read as a racial tale. We have Kong being taken from the island, not much different from the slave trade, especially with their plan for the animal. The up-close look at Kong's face does seem to have a very similar to that of the caricatures that would come out afterwards in the advertising and racist cartoons. On top of that, he's a mindless beast that is going after a white woman. I don't think that's what they had in mind when making this film. That documentary was horror noir, kind of introduced some of these ideas. But I can see the elements there, and if somebody reads it that way, I'm not going to blame them. Plus, the men are quite sexist, which was a sign of the times that it was made. That should be enough for the story, So, and the ideas behind it as well. Now, I'll take this over to the technical aspects, as this runs about 100 minutes, but I didn't feel it. I never found myself bored, and we are constantly seeing things happening. This film has surprisingly had a bit of subplot that you necessarily didn't get in films of the era. There is a good allegory to like Beauty and the Beast while also have the problems that they have at hand. I do like the ending as I feel like it's a tragic and sad one. Something else that struck me was the acting. I think a lot of this is that we didn't get flashy filmmaking in the era that could cover it up. I thought Rey was, does a great job in her character. She's a bit passive, but that's a byproduct of the era. She was quite attractive, and I like the fear that she shows. Armstrong is kind of a scumbag when it comes to business, but I can respect his treatment of Anne. Cabot is fine in his role, and that is Bruce Cabot. And I think the rest of the cast were on the south for what was needed. It was good to see minorities cast in some of these roles as well. At least it did seem that way. I couldn't get through this without talking about the effects. 
They were done with stop motion before it was popular. I do believe that I read that the man in charge trained Ray Harryhausen, who is a legend in this technique. I think it holds up for the most part. There are things here that I noticed, but for a film this old, I was still impressed. There are some animal fighting that was solid and the number of deaths also, which I didn't remember. The cinematography is well done. We don't get a lot of crazy techniques here, but what we do is good and the setting also helps to make it feel real. So the final thing I'm going to go into would be the soundtrack. I think the musical selections fit for what was needed and help to build tension. There are some drums, which I'm not entirely sure if you'd be able to hear them as far out as their ship was, but it does give an ominous feel of foreboding. Also, the sounds of Kong and other animals, they were quite realistic. So then in conclusion, I didn't expect to like this as much as I did. I think it has a story that still works today. There are some underlying issues that can be read into this, depending on what you think, which I'm a fan of. I also liked the acting. I thought that was good, and the effects were amazing for the time. Soundtrack fits for what was needed. It is insane to think how old this is, but I think that's a good one. I would avoid this, though, if you don't like old films or ones that are in black and white. This is a recommendation if you can get past it, though, for sure. So my rating here for King Kong from 1933 is a 9 out of 10. And for my second mini review is going to be The Eight Immortals Restaurant. This goes by this title, though, The Untold Story. It goes by the original title as well as Bat Sin Fan Dim Yan Yuk Cha Sui Ba. This is from 1993. This was directed between Danny Lee and Herman Yao. This was written between Yin Kin Lao and Kim Fa La. This stars Anthony Chow Sang Wong, Danny Lee, and Emily Kwan. This is a comedy crime drama horror thriller film that is from Hong Kong. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being Macau cops suspect a man running a pork buns restaurant of murder after tracing the origin of a case full of chopped up human remains that wash ashore, which leads them to him. So this movie that I heard about thanks to the people in the podcasting community. Now, my buddy Derek showed me that he got this, and then the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror covered this movie. As part of that, Mr. Parker likes this, and it also appeared in the Summer Challenge series for the podcast Under the Stairs. That is the reason I watched this, as it was one of the movies that I had not seen before. So for this one is an interesting that by the end of this, it seems to be based on a real case. I didn't look it up to see if that was the case or not. Now, things that I've heard from Mr. Parker makes me think that it might be. I did also see some trivia that this, there was a real case that it's loosely based on, and it happened in Macau. Now, Hong Kong is a bunch of these Category 3 movies where they would be exploitative in what they would show, as well as to use real events as the basis. So that's taken care of. This is a wild movie. Wong Chi Hang, who is portrayed by Wong, is someone who is very mentally unstable. He gets agitated by anyone and everyone. He seems like he does what he can to keep it together well enough when the police show up. Then when he loses control is when the police talk to his employees and see he's not around to hear what they're saying. He doesn't believe anyone, so he assumes they ratted on him. It is truly the look of someone who knows they're guilty. He's sloppy, so by killing, he thinks that he makes it easier. The truth is that it makes it even more difficult. Wong is such a despicable human being for the things that he does, and I did want to give credit to Wong's portrayal here, though, as he does a great job, to be honest. Now, I did want to go over to the effects here, and I have to give credit since they look so real. The blood and gore is on point. There were times where it made me cringe. I knew this coming in, but actually seeing it was something else. Not the most graphic of things that I've seen. I did want to establish that. Cinematography should also be pulled in here, as I think they do well at framing shots, where it leaves a bit to our imagination. Both of these are good, so I'll give credit for sure. 
Then to shift over to the story, I knew coming in that there was a bit of comedy. I don't know if it works for me, to be honest. It feels like The Last House on the Left, where the subject matter is so difficult to deal with that they decided to inject comedy to lighten it. The police officers are one step away from being the Three Stooges, and I'm guessing that it was acceptable. It just doesn't fit my taste. That's not to say that this has bad acting. I'd say that my piece on Wong already, but Lee is good as this officer that everybody looks up to. He's actually a good cop from what I can see. Then we also have Emily Kwan. There is Eric Kai, King Kong Lam, Parkman Wong. They were all fine as well. They fit for what they were asked to do, it seems like. I thought that Lee was good at the fear that she shows, and that would be Julie Lee. Other than that, I would say that Fui An Shing, Sui Ming Lao, and the rest of the cast were onto this out for what was needed. So the last thing to go over to would be the movie has the police officers capturing Wong. They need him to confess. This movie shows the police officers being brutal in their treatment to get a confession. It is wild to watch this with American eyes because what they're doing is illegal. I'd go as far to say that they're violating the Geneva Convention with my understanding of it. We know that they have the right guy and they don't want to let him go. It's hard to watch, especially with the state of the police force in my country and the call for widespread sweeping reform. It makes me thankful for where I live because of seeing what they're doing here to this guy. Now, in conclusion, this movie is interesting. If you like gore, then I would say to give this one a watch. We have a story that seems loosely based on something that happened. I think that Wong is good as our villainous lead. The police fit the tone that the movie is going for. That is my issue, though. I don't care for the comedy. This doesn't ruin the movie, though. That is something that I did want to say. If you like movies like this, I'd recommend giving it a viewing. I just feel like there's a niche audience, so I can't recommend it to everyone with the extreme nature that it goes to. So I'm not going to give my actual rating here for The Untold Story just because this is going to be covered in the summer series. But what I will say is I'm going to try to give this one a second watch so you know I'm more versed on it since this was just my first time watching it here. But like I said, I would recommend it under those circumstances. Then up next I have a screener that I have to check out thanks to Justin Cook and this is for Bermuda Island. This is from 2023, directed by Adam Wirth. It was written by Robert Thompson, and it looks like Michael and Sonny Mahal came up with the story. This also is starring John Wells, Sarah French, and Victor V. Gelsomino. This is getting its release here in 2023. It's an action-adventure drama horror-mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently does not have a rating on IMDb because it hasn't been released as of yet, according over to there. And then there aren't enough ratings on Letterboxd as well, but the synopsis is passengers on their way to a tropical paradise crash at sea and find themselves on a deserted island. Desperate to survive the elements and in fighting between the survivors, they find that the island has more in store for them than they could ever imagine. So this is a movie that I saw thanks to Mahal, actually. Justin Cook did not send this one over. He helped come up with the story and is a producer on this one. He sent over a screener and since I enjoy getting the word out about independent cinema, I agreed to watch and review. Seeing the title intrigued me. The Bermuda Triangle is fascinating to me growing up, so I wanted to see what we did with it here. So coming into this one, we get our setup. I realize that there's a bunch of characters for cannon fodder. I'll come back to that here shortly. But where I want to start is with a positive. I like the basic concept that we get here. Having the plane crash due to a freak storm by the Bermuda Triangle is great. It takes me back to things that I had an irrational fear about as a child and the mystery of that area. 
There is a reveal while they're there that is also good. I'm not going to spoil what it is, but I will say that it ticks boxes for me when done right. It could also explain things as well. Now, to stick with another positive, I love the idea of the character of Bruce, who is portrayed by John Wells being trapped on the island and knowing the score. He tries to help the new survivors, and we learn that he was in the military, so that is part of it. I will give something to you that could be considered a spoiler, but there are these humanoid creatures on the island. They attack at night, and I love this idea. This is going to take me to a negative, though. I want them to be fleshed out a bit more about, like, their history. Now, I get part of that as the characters don't know, so they don't get explained. Learning more of the history of these entities has my attention more than what we got. This instead focuses more on the bickering between the survivors in an almost Lord of the Flies way. The acting isn't strong enough, and the writing doesn't capture enough of for me to be on board. Our creatures are much better looking and interesting. As I brought it up, I'll go over to the filmmaking and start with the effects. The look of the monsters is great. I'd guess that they were done practical. Going along with this, the blood and gore we also get is good. There seemed to be some stuff that was done without computers, so I'm impressed there. I do have to say we get some CGI, and it doesn't look great. It doesn't ruin things for me since this is a smaller part. Other than that, I would say the cinematography was fine. I love the setting of our stranding, our group on this island. And then the soundtrack I thought worked for what was needed without standing out. And the last thing to go into would be the acting. Wells was fine as Bruce. There is a reveal to his character that I enjoyed. We also get another, but I'll be honest. When that happened, I already checked out. Now, French and Gel Somino are solid as our two leads. I'd say the rest of the group that are stranded with them as well. Should also say that Sarah French portraying Carolyn. Then we also have Wesley Cannon as an FBI agent. He's so good there as being this jerk. The performance of the creatures were all solid. We also get cameos by Tom Sizemore and Noel Guglemia. I think that's how you'd say his name. And they're there to pull in viewers. Can't fault the filmmaking team for that. The acting is amateur for the most part. And I do say that, but I mean, it fits for this type of movie in my opinion. So in conclusion, I think that we have uh, some good things here. We get the isolated location and elements of the story that I'm a fan of. I even like the survivors being hunted by these creatures. The practical effects we get are good. CGI isn't great, but it doesn't necessarily rely on it either. Acting is fine. No one is going to win awards here, but this is a lower budget movie. I just think that there are things that they're focusing on that aren't as interesting, so it does lose me later on into this. If you're a fan of independent, low budget cinema, I think you'll enjoy this enough. So my rating for Bermuda Island is going to be a 6 out of 10. And if you'd like to watch Bermuda Island, it looks like this one's going to be available on January 20th. I thought it might have been January 23rd, but it will be available on VOD. And my last mini-review is actually going to be one that Justin Cook did send to me as a screener, and this is for Alchemy of the Spirit. This is from 2022. Now, this isn't a horror movie, but this is sci-fi. It is written and directed by Steve Balderson. This stars Xander Berkeley, Sarah Clark, and Mink Stoley. This is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb and not enough ratings on Letterboxd, but I would say this is hovering between like a two and a half, three star movie. And the synopsis is artist Oliver Black wakes to discover his wife Evelyn has died in their bed overnight. Brimming with magical realism, we enter a world in which the misconceptions of our beliefs in a solid reality are revealed. So this movie that I got the chance to see, as I said, thanks to Justin Cook, sent over a screener, and the bit that I saw sounded interesting. As I settled in, I realized that this starred Berkeley, who is an actor I like. It also seemed to, like, he did some extra work behind the camera as well, which I did find to be quite interesting. So there's not really much I can say for the story. This one's more of an experience and one that you really kind of need to just let it wash over you. 
This is more of a character study, though, of Oliver, portrayed by Berkeley, as he comes to terms with what happened to his wife. We're also seeing the stages of grief. We see at first that he denies what happened to her. He tries to keep the body preserved, and I don't know if he believes that she did pass on, or if he just doesn't want to let her go. Now, with their house isolated like it is, you could say that there is a sadness here that makes him delusional. He sees her. He talks to her and interacts with her as well. That is where you could also look at being, like, the reality being bent a bit. Maybe he is. I like that there's an interesting scene where Alex comes and talks about a horrible smell. My guess is that this is Evelyn. So I should say that Evelyn is portrayed by Clark with Alex being portrayed by Stoli. Now I'm not going to go through the stages of grief other than what I've already given and how Oliver goes through them. This is listed as sci-fi though as I was saying. It continues to go back to these like glowing orbs. When it cuts away and then comes back later, there's one less. I thought this was like a countdown, but by the end of it, I think it's signifying something else. Especially where the movie ends up, it's quite a beautiful thing with what I took from it. Now, since there isn't more that I can go into for the story, let me go over to the strongest part of this movie, which is the acting. Berkeley is great here. I'm not sure if this was a personal touch that came from him or if it came from Balderson, but it feels like somebody has dealt with the loss of someone so close or... There, at least Berkeley might just be channeling that performance. Regardless, I think that he is great. The facial expressions and body language of a man who is sad is so on point. I also like how he and Clark interact. I could feel the love between them, which is good. Other than that, I would say that Stoli was good along with Whip Hubley, Alex Coppola, Matthew Della Mater, and Jewel Selbo. This is a small cast which works. Now, there is one last thing I would like to go into, which would be the filmmaking. Cinematography was probably right there behind the acting as the best part of this movie. We get some soft focus, which is great. It gives it a surreal feel that makes it help with the atmosphere that it's going for. Sci-fi elements used in a light way, but also in a way where I could see the message they're trying to convey. We don't get much in the way of effects, but you wouldn't necessarily expect that. You don't necessarily need that, though, either. It's just a sci-fi movie, so that's kind of where it you know gives me a little bit of expectations for more. I'll say the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So in conclusion, this is a movie that I came in knowing as little as possible about and just experienced it. I'll be honest, I tried watching this while staying up with my daughter who was a newborn and that wasn't a good idea. I had to circle back. This has a heartfelt story behind it. It is more of a character study to see Oliver deal with loss and come to accept it. I'd say that Berkeley was great. There was, you know, the rest of the cast are kind of pushing him to where he ends up. This is well made. Not one that I can recommend to everyone. It's just a work that is charged with emotion, so just know that coming in. So my rating here for Alchemy of the Spirit is going to be a 7 out of 10. And if you'd like to see this, it is now available on Prime Video, and it will be on a large number of cable and digital platforms as well. So if you do want to see this, this one is available to watch immediately. So that's all I have for mini reviews here, so let me go ahead and get you over to the trailer for my first featured review. Katie, you lost your parents. Welcome home. You're my niece. I'm gonna do everything I can to make this place feel like home. I just wish I could see them again. I'm not equipped to handle this. I don't even take care of my own plants. I have this project at work. Do you wanna see? Yes. Ever since I was little, I dreamed of this perfect toy that would protect a kid from ever feeling lonely or sad. This is Megan. Hi, Megan. I'm Katie. It's nice to meet you, Katie. Do you want to hang out? Okay. 
Megan, your goal is to protect Katie from harm, both physical and emotional. Is that a doll? Model 3 generative. Android. Megan, for short. I can't believe you made this. I love it. Wanna hang out, yeah, sounds like fun. Great job. It's nice to have a friend. It's honestly like she's part of the family now. They could be building emotional connections that are too hard to untangle. She's the happiest she's been since her parents died. Eat the toppings, Katie. Research shows if you force a child to eat vegetables, they'll be less likely to choose those foods as adults. Is that so? Yes. Experts say... Megan, turn off. I thought we were having a conversation. Does she talk? Make her say something. Stop! Don't! Megan! You should probably run. Megan, she pushed Brandon onto the road. I won't let anything harm you. Megan, turn off. Recalibrating response model. <laughs> Megan! What's wrong with you? Don't worry, Katie. I won't let anything harm you. Ever again. It's nice to have and for my first feature review here is going to be Megan. This is my, also my first 2023 horror film that I watched as well. But this is technically from 2022, but it's getting its wide release this year. This is directed by Gerard Johnstone. The screenplay was written by Akila Cooper, who also came up with the story with James Wan. This stars Allison Williams, Violet McGraw, and Ronnie Chiang. This also stars Amy Donald, Jenna Davis, Brian Jordan Alvarez, Jen Van Epp, Stephen Garneau-Montan, Lori Dunney, Amy Underwood, Jack Cassidy, Michael Scanetit, Samson Chan Boone, Natasha Kojic, Kira Josephson, Renee Lyons, Millen Baird, and Chelsea Preston Clayford. This is a horror sci-fi thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being, a robotics engineer at a toy company builds a lifelike doll that begins to take on a life of its own. So this movie that I thought was coming out last year, when I heard that it was dropping in January as the first theater horror movie for 2023, I was intrigued. I did see that that opening weekend, and it's one that I didn't watch trailers or know much about of the plot. I saw pictures and knew that it featured a robot, but that was about the extent of what I knew coming in. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes here, and I will start with our director here of Johnstone. Now he's home three works. His first was a short called Special Crimes Unit. Now, he also did Housebound, which I'm a fan of that movie, and then he did this. Moving to our writers, Cooper has penned the screenplay. She's written five things. All of them are in horror. I've seen two. Her first was Hellfest, which I have not seen, but she also wrote Malignant, this, and then she has the upcoming Nun 2 and something called The Boogeyman. Now, helping with the story was Juan. I've seen 11 of his 16 movies. Out of horror, I've seen Aquaman. 14 of his are in horror, and I've seen 10 of those. The ones that I haven't seen is his first of Stygian from 2000. I've never heard of that one. 
but I've seen most of the Saw, Conjuring, and Insidious movies. I've also seen Dead Silence and Malignant. Then to our cast, first will be Williams. I've seen three of her eight works. In genres, she has three, and those are the ones that I've seen. She was in Get Out, The Perfection, and this. Then there is McGraw. She has 11 films, and I've seen five. I've seen Ready Player One and Black Widow. She's done three in horror with Dr. Sleep, Separation, and this. I've seen all of those ones. Now, then I'll look over at both parties taking on the character of Megan. First is Davis. She has three works, and I've only seen this, also her first in genre. The other is Donald, and this is her feature film debut. So we start this off with a commercial about a new toy for kids. It's like a Furby, but the mechanics inside are more advanced. It can learn and adapt to things. The problem is that you need an iPad to get it to its full potential. We see that Katie, who is portrayed by McGraw, in the car with her parents. Now, she has one of these toys. It upsets her mother, who feels like Katie's aunt only gave it to her since she works for the company that makes them. Now, tragedy strikes, killing both parents. We then get to meet the aunt. Her name is Gemma, and she's portrayed by Williams. Along with the team of Cole, portrayed by Alvarez, and Tess, portrayed by Van Epps, they're working on the next best toy. The problem is that her boss of David, portrayed by Chang, wants her focus on making a cheaper version of the toys that they're already selling. The competitor found out somehow a way of making it but cutting into their business by making it cheaper. So Gemma shows this prototype, but it fails. This puts her in hot water and in a jam to be sued, and that is when she learns the tragedy that has happened. Now, Gemma is forced to take custody of Katie. What I mean here is that she's forced to do the right thing. The state is leery of her, though. She doesn't have any toys for her, and it seems like she's more focused on her own life. The way they bond is over a robot that Gemma made in college. Katie says things that gives her an idea for the prototype. From this point on, it will be referred to as Megan, and this is, as I was saying, the body portrayed by Donald and then the voice by Davis. Using Katie in the demonstration, David is on board for the new robot. The goal is then to show it to the higher-ups and get them sold on it. This works, but Gemma also rushes the programming. Megan bonds with Katie, but will protect her at all costs, even if it means murder. So that's going to leave my recap for this movie and introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is with the critiques that I've been seeing. The first is that this movie borrows heavy from Child's Play remake. I would agree there. We have Megan, like Chucky in that version, will protect the child that it is bonded with no matter what. And this movie is also borrowing that Megan can connect to the cloud and other machines with Bluetooth. It is what it is. Movies mimic others all the time, so it doesn't ruin it for me. This movie is also exploring the idea of AI and the dangers of it getting too advanced. Now, which the next thing is I want to delve into a bit more. Movies that spring to mind for me are like Robocop or The Terminator when it comes to following certain protocols. How this manages it is that Gemma is using company funds for this project when she shouldn't be. This rushes her into a beta product. Megan pairs with Katie who is avoiding dealing with what happened to her parents by latching onto this robot. I think it does good for her. It gives her someone to talk to. Gemma should be the person that she confides in though. She isn't prepared for parenthood. I did like the commentary here of her not being ready despite her age. As a new parent myself, there are times where I question if I'm truly ready or not. Now, I don't want to necessarily get away with what I was trying to explore here, but rushing to the protocols for the robot is something I need to kind of bring back in here. Megan isn't supposed to hurt people. I'm getting the idea that Gemma didn't put in it fully or at all or just left something out with that like code. Megan will protect 
and kill anything that makes Katie sad. So that's kind of a tough thing here is that as a human, we kind of have to feel this emotion. Megan being connected to the internet is a bit like Ultron. She learns things that she can't fully comprehend since there's a lack of emotion. We've seen AI getting too advanced in movies for decades. I don't know if this one explores anything new, but I do like the commentary there still, regardless. Now, where I want to go next would be the acting. I thought that Williams did a good job at being this aunt who loves her niece, but isn't ready to take on this responsibility. There is growth there, which works. I credit her for that. McGraw does great at showing emotions as a child dealing with trauma. I was impressed here as well. Chang is good as his jerk boss. Donald does good at being the body of Megan, with Davis as the voice is as well. I'd say that the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. Another great for the movie is I'll cover with the filmmaking. There were people upset with this being rated PG-13. I don't mind it. Does that mean the gore is scaled back? Absolutely. But there were things here that made me cringe still. It can be well done at times if you can hide things and leave it implied. There was CGI that didn't necessarily work for me. Not all of it, but there were just moments here and there. I think that this has some cinematography that is solid. The soundtrack also works for what was needed without necessarily standing out. So there is some trivia. I'm not going to do all of it because some of it's quite lengthy. The writer of the film of Cooper hopes that this will eventually get an unrated cut release. This was originally supposed to be R. And then Blum cited that Drag Me to Hell was a good PG-13. That was still effective. This does tone on the violence. And I, I don't think it necessarily hurts it. So I kind of agree with him. Megan stands for Model 3 Genitive Android. The song Megan is seen playing on the piano is Toy Soldiers, a 1988 hit from the artist Martika. Technician uses to pen to track Megan's eye movements. The way this scene is presented is a POV very similar to the montage of Officer Murphy reconstructed in RoboCop. Uh, this is the first time in 45 years to be released on the first Friday in January and obtain a fresh Rotten Tomatoes score. Traditionally, films released on the first Friday, especially horror films, tend to get negative reviews. The producers knew the movie would appeal to teenagers, hence the rating. The first trailer went viral on TikTok, also kind of explains it. This is actually released in France and Mexico in December of 2022. There are several sequences and references to Child's Play from 88 as well. And that's all I'm going to do for the trivia there. So then to close out this review here, I enjoyed this movie. I was expecting it to be odd. I didn't know what to think coming in. There is a good heart here with the tragedy of what happened to Katie's parents and trying to overcome that trauma. We see a new guardian who isn't fully prepared on how to help. This is not even getting to the robot Megan, which will do whatever it can to protect the girl that she's paired with. thought this was well made. A bit cheesy at times, but I still enjoyed it. I would recommend giving this one a watch. Don't come in expecting a lot and just enjoy what you get here. So my rating for Megan is going to be a 7 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Oh, 
second feature review here is going to be House from 1977, and this goes by the original title of Hasu. This was directed by Nobuiko Obayashi. The screenplay was written by Chiho Katsara, and then the original story by Chigumi Obayashi. This stars Kimiku Ikigama, Miki Jinbo, Kamuko Oba, this also has Ai Matsubara, Miko Sato, Eriko Tanaka, Matsuyo Miyako, Kayoko Ozaki, Saho Sagagaza, Asi Kobayashi, Mitsutashi Izigami, Aipi Hara, Tetsuo Kane, Soichi Hiroshi, Yasumasa Inanoshi, Midori Natu, Kayako Tishu, and Tomo Kazi Miri. So if I mispronounce any of those names, I do apologize, but this is a comedy horror film that is from Japan. It is currently sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb and a 4.0 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being, a schoolgirl and six classmates travel to her aunt's country home, which turns out to be haunted. So this movie that I originally learned about due to the Fangoria Top 300 horror movies, this was featured in that. It sounded wild, so it went on a list of movies to check out in the genre. This is also one that would pop up from time to time on podcasts, which just made me want to see it even more. The poster I saw with the cat was also great, so another check in its favor. This one actually appeared on the randomizer, which is why it is being reviewed here. So before I get into the movie, let me do some featured notes here, and I'll start with our director of Obayashi who has 72 credits. This is the first that I've seen from him. He's done seven with the first being Remembrance from 1963. His last was the Disincarnates from 88. Now to the writers, I'll start with Katsara. He has 75 works, and this is the first that I've seen. He did eight in genre. The first was Assault, Jack the Ripper from 1976. The last was Orgasm Miraku from 1985. It looks like he dabbled in sex-fueled horror movies in his country. Now his co-writer of Obayashi, she has two movies. I've only ever seen this one, and this is her only one in horror. Now to the cast, I'll start with Ikigama. She has 20 films. This is the first that I saw. This is her only one in horror as well. Her co-star of Jinbo has eight things. This is the first that I've seen as well. She did one other horror film called The Possessed from the year prior. Then to Anba. Now, she was only in eight movies. I've only ever seen this one. She did four in genre, the first one being this one now she was also in village of doom from 83 the frozen horror show from 87 and swan song from 2002 as her latest and then before i actually get into the movie itself let me read the little blurb that i got in the fangoria top 300 movie list thing that i'm working through and it looks like this was from samuel zimmerman and he says about house is unique mind-blowing pop art Anarchic, Amazing, House, a.k.a. Hausu, is a film that defies lucid description, recounting its plot of seven teenage girls visiting an aunt in a house that literally comes alive, scarcely begins to suggest the chaos on display. 
human-eating pianos, dancing skeletons, mattress boats, and laser cats make Obayashi's first feature one of the best and most extreme cases of using the visual medium to its full potential. It's an exciting piece of work whose energy is unlikely to ever be replicated. And if you even consider yourself a fan or student of cinema, or even remotely interested in being affected by a movie, then you treat your eyes to all that is house. So, where I'm going to start off is that this is a difficult one to recap. I'm going to flesh out the synopsis a bit more before getting into my thoughts, but there's this teen girl named Gorgeous, portrayed by Ikigama. Now, she is expecting to go on a trip with her father who works in the film industry and has been away working in Italy. He is known in the credits as Daddy Kogarashi, and that's portrayed by Sasazawa. Now, he has disrupted her plans, though. Gorgeous's mother passed away, and he's now going to marry Raiko Ima, portrayed by Wanabuchi. Now, to get back at him, Gorgeous writes to her aunt to see if she can come stay with her. She gets confirmation that her aunt would love to see her. Now, she ends up inviting her friend group. They consist of the names that correlate to what they like or are good at, and I should also include Gorgeous in that, as she's supposed to be very pretty. But there is Kung Fu, portrayed by Jinbo. There's Fantasy, portrayed by Oba. There's Professor, portrayed by Matsubara. There's Mac, portrayed by Sato. Melody by Tanaka. And Sweet by Miyaku. Now, this trip turns into a nightmare. The house seems to be haunted, and there's something not quite right about it. And that includes Auntie Kari Hasu, portrayed by Yoko Minamita. It becomes a fight for survival as the house tries to take each one of them. It tries to isolate them to make it easier, and they don't believe it's happening at first. Can they break the curse before it's too late? So now one of the first things that I want to go into as I was writing this review was about this being an experimental film, and that's spot on. This definitely has vibes of art house with things that it does. We get interesting camera angles, and there are effects that are just odd and weird. When the hauntings are attacking people, there are things that just don't necessarily work with the laws of physics. I'm going to give credit here to the cinematography and the effects. Being that this is from 1977, they went practical, and what I'm going to say is not all of them work. I will give credit to this trippy movie, though, for sure. Now, shifting from this, I did want to say that this is a basic story and one that we've seen before. The visuals do help to make this stand out. This almost feels like a precursor to something like The Grudge. I don't know enough of the backstory or where this idea has came from. I will do some trivia of some of this stuff, but we have this haunted house that was powered by Auntie Kari. We learn that the reason for it, and it's sad, it also makes sense as well. I like the bit of commentary that comes with it as it pulls World War II into this as well. Now, something I laughed at when I was first was that the names of the characters. I'll be honest. These girls all look similar to me, so I'm glad that they are named for their traits. Gorgeous is the pretty one. Kung Fu can fight. Fantasy has dreams of things, and she gets lost in them. Professor is the smart one. Mac likes to eat. Melody has musical talent, and Sweet is innocent. I also like the house tries to take them by capitalizing on these traits, and that was a good touch for me. Now, since I brought up the characters, I'll say that the acting here works. I'd say that Ikigama, Jinbo, Oba, Matsubara, Sato, Tanaka, and Miyaku are all good as these characters that we are following. Mirari is good as the aunt. The rest of the characters are like cartoons or like caricatures of that are in human form, but that goes with the tone of the film. I can't say there's a bad performance. This does go a bit too comedic where I wanted to say a bit straight, but that's just a personal preference and I can't necessarily hold that against a movie. So... I'm going to do a little bit of trivia here is the script was partially inspired by Obayashi's then 12-year-old daughter, Chigumi. She told him of a fear that she had that the mirror would eat her. 
It actually looked like Obayashi got some of these young actresses as they were not necessarily trained in like acting, but they were young ladies who were models that worked with a director in advertising or commercials. This was one of the first Japanese films to use video effects, which applied to a scene would make one of the girls dissolve underwater through low fidelity video and a simple chroma key effect. Um, nearly all the actors I was saying were untrained or inexperienced. It was really just Mina Mita who played the aunt. This film was commissioned by Toho in reaction to the success of foreign horror films like Jaws and was designed to be a domestic reflection of the success of Western films and genre. Obayashi was looking at doing a sequel but decided to just have this be a one-time event. It looks like he did a lot of stuff on TV before getting into this. The Japanese rock band Godigo have a brief cameo as the men who flirt with the girls at the Tokyo Station. I believe they actually do a song here as well. This one actually had some very interesting effects as part of the Criterion Collection. The characters of the ramen shot are a parody of a Tora-san series, one of the longest and most popular series there. Near the beginning of the film, the girl's father returns and remarks that Leone likes the music better than Marconi. These are references to famed Italian director and composer Sergio Leone and Ennio Morricone. So that's all I'm going to do here for the trivia. So what I will say is that this is a trip. This is one that I would like to take mind-altering substances. If I did them, then watch. There's a simple story here that works. The real star are the visuals. Not everything looks great, but I like what they did and tried to do. I'd say the acting worked for what was needed. We get an interesting soundtrack to go along with it. I do need to re-watch this one to figure out what I saw, though. I can't recommend this to everybody, but if you like odd films or into art house cinema, give this one a watch. So my rating here for House is going to be a 7 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section for this one either because I don't really know what else I would do except going like scene by scene. So let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back and then just to close everything out here if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have read on the show you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com if there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show just let me know in that email if you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes that's horrorreview.webnode.com if you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And for my next episode is going to be another of my New Year New Movies as the one that came up on the randomizer was something called Rituals. This is a movie from the late 70s and then I'm also going to pair that up with 
The Offering, which kind of makes for an interesting double feature here of two films featuring rituals. Now, on top of that, I will watch another movie from the past that is from 1933 so I can keep up with you know my traverse through the threes. Also, got to watch another one in the theater, and I'll have more mini-reviews and everything like that. Don't think there's anything else I need to get to speed with here as I should, like I said, hopefully be back on track now. But can't wait for that episode to come out for everybody to hear this one as well as that one, you know, everything like that. So I will say is in closing here is whatever you do today. I hope you're safe and doing it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. Thank you so much for listening. I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 